someone's going to get offended. It's just the way the world works. So to hopefully save everyone a little time and or energy, here's this. The opinions that you hear are those of the host and callers and not those of iHeartMedia, its management, or advertisers. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the Phillips File, broadcasting high atop the iHeartMedia complex on WTKS-FM HD1. Coco Beach, Orlando. Available anywhere you go on the iHeartRadio app. Download it now. Groundbreaking. Critically acclaimed. And now, the Phillips file. All right, here we go. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. Yeah, it is. It's the uh, Phillips File. This one for a Wednesday, April 25th. On these Wednesdays, we do away with the uh, normal intro because we want to get right into it. Today marks interview number eight on the Phillips File as we take a look at the we take the first 30 to 40 minutes of the show to uh, take a look at the uh, opioid crisis in Central Florida, try to concentrate on that for 30 or 40 minutes. Our guest today is Louis Delgado, known by some as the Dope Doctor. More on that a little bit later. Louis, welcome to the program. Let me just uh, read this, first of all, for people who are wondering uh, who Louis is. Uh, let me, because he wrote us, uh, you know, he knows we've been doing these interviews. <laughs> yeah. And he wanted us to know uh, a little bit more about him and for the audience to know a little bit more about him. So we'll start right from here. Uh, he is now the co-chair for the treatment committee of the Orange County Drug-Free Office with Carol Burkett, who we've talked to, of course. Mm-hmm. National speaker for the medication Vivitrol, is that what it's called? Correct. And uh, is in the business of helping people recover from opioid addiction. And But he writes, however, all of this would not be possible if I wasn't clean and sober. A brief description of my addiction and recovery is difficult, but here it is in a nutshell, writes Louis. <laughs> my addiction was... Not on opioids, but it was cocaine, alcohol, and pot. I'm a Mexican, Puerto Rican, American who was raised primarily on the border of El Paso and Juarez. That's Juarez, Mexico, of course. Started drinking at 9, smoking pot at 11, dealing pot at 11, trafficking pot by 12, daily use and trafficking of cocaine at 15, arrested for attempted murder at 17, and finally clean and sober at 19, had no desire to become the man I am right now. Welcome to the program. No, well, thank wow. Thank you. Thank you very much. You really packed a lot into a couple of years there, Louis. Well, I thought all I had was a few. So, so I try to use those few as best so I can. So you're growing up. Well, you're growing up in El Paso, and right. uh, you told me your father was uh, in the Army. Your mother is grew up in, a, in Juarez. Is that right? So you're making the easy back and forth Correct. over the border. Correct. So I come from a good family. So first of all, when it comes to addiction and recovery, um, a lot of people get the misconception that you come from a bad family or that there's a lot that's of bad right. like that's that what we learned. Well, I come from a very good family. I come from a very supportive family, a very loving family. But it was, it was, you know, my father was gone all the time. He went to two tours to Vietnam. I was born out of that era. Yeah. Um, you know, so he was always on some sort of mission. He's a lifer, to a, a command sergeant major, uh, retired. My mom was Department of Defense, and they had her going all over the place. And, and, you know, she wasn't prepared to have two sons. We were two boys. 
And in in the eighties, you remember the eighties? Uh, I you know, try to. Uh, yes, <laughs> yeah. I do. Some of it, yeah. <laughs> Some of it. Well, me too. It, well, in those eighties, you know, when I started using, I, I I was this little aggressive kid. I had a lot of issues with my brother. My brother became very volatile because my dad was gone all the time. Sure. Uh, you know, so he assumed that role of parent role, dad role, and in doing so, nobody taught him how to do it. So he was overly aggressive. And the way I dealt with his overaggression is that you know I felt like such a wimp and weak at home because of him, you know, doing what he did to me. That I went out into the streets and I and I found a way to be strong. Yeah, mm, you know, it was, it was very it was good to be a manly back then. It was you know it was very it was it was exactly. kicked in our head that we had to be this this macho guy. Sure. Uh, back then, so I went out in the streets and and I fought really well. I was really good at fighting. I was really good at uh, uh, having other people do things that I wanted them to do, and I was real good at flipping things into money. So I started you know first with stealing boxes of candy, selling candy in school, and so by nine years old or by eleven years old. Um, you know, this guy, I, it actually started kind of funny. So I, so, so here's the story. Now follow this. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm now in El Paso, Texas. You know, I'm a military brat. So we kind of moved all over Germany or whatever, but I, we landed back home, which is El Paso because Juarez is right there. And so I go knocking on this door, knock, knock, knock. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, what do you call it? Halloween. And I'm dressed Mm -hmm. as a mummy. Right. Mm -hmm. So I go over the mummy with a friend of mine and this guy that opens the door, his name is Jaime. I'll never forget him because he was a hazel eyed, green eyed Mexican like us. We're hazel eyed. Right. And that's kind of unusual. And so I was like, wow. He looks just like us, and, and he had this great reputation for being a dropout and everything. And nobody dropped out in his early yeah. 80s. You don't wanna, if you were a dropout, you, you're really bad. <laughs> so, so go knock on his door, and he, instead of candy, he puts a joint in my, in my bag. And so for trick-or-treat? For trick-or-treat. I'm trick-or-treat. I'm 11 years old. And he gives me a joint, and I you know, look down on it. And, and so he sees my reaction. He says, come on in. I go in, and you know, he had that typical, hey, man, come on in. You know, he had that kind of voice. You know, and, and I spoke a little bit more like that, but I don't, really. So we went and sat down. And I'm sitting there across from him, me and my friend. It looked like one of those little uh, movies where you have two like innocent kids looking at sure. another guy. And so he's over there with his girlfriend or whatever she is, and and they're kind of you know doing things in front of us. And it looked pretty darn interesting to me. I'm I'm real intrigued at this point, but I'm looking at everything, and I'm looking at this table, and I see roaches, I see seeds, I see wares, I see bags, I see a lot of things I've never seen before. And I'm very curious. And he goes, "You want to try it?" And so obviously, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to say no. You know, he's a cool guy. Well, you're footloose oh. and fancy free. You have no supervision at home. You're just right. trying to make your mark in the world, even as a nine Correct. years old. Yeah. And uh, somewhere along the line, culturally, uh, because of uh, maybe a, a Mexican background right. and your father in the army, you're trying to you're trying to trying to be a man. I'm just trying to be a man. Okay. And and, and I'm trying to get acceptance from a guy that sure. I looked up to as a real man. Right. You know, so, and of course, my brother's not making me feel like one, but this guy did. Gotcha. You know, he's actually offering me to take part in something with him. So, of course, I did. So, that day is when I actually started smoking pot. And, and, and the weird thing is, the guy next to me didn't. The guy next to me actually left. He made that right decision. You know, and you don't want to, you get one of those moments. And I think that's why I remember it so well, is because it was an actual defining moment. I had a decision to make. Right. And I decided to stay and smoke. And my friend decided to leave. My friend became a, a, a firefighter in El Paso police, uh, Fire Department. Right. A really good guy to this day. And I, of course, went a different direction. And I got lucky enough to become who I am. So, you're getting high on pot. I mean, is this the right. individual said, hey, by the way, you can make some money that doing day, this? That night. So, he was essentially, he became your boss? Yeah, essentially. Because that, that night, he already knew I was I was uh, flipping candy. And he already knew that I was stealing bikes with my friends. So, right. he says, you think you can get rid of some of this? And then he taught me how I can get it free. He goes, he, he gave me a nickel bag. He fronted me. And he goes, for, you give me $5 back and you keep one. So, you make six pinners. He showed me how to roll six pinners. So, I got one free joint out of every nickel. But I wanted the dollar. 
So I started flipping. He showed me how to take the screen out of my house, sift it, you know, roll the joints. I did all that. But, you know, quickly, you know, by the way, it's really hard to sell a lot of marijuana when you're 11 years old to other 11-year-old kids. Nice. So my so 11-year-olds, that was a... That's so, not your audience. Yeah. yeah. No. When you can prove, by the way, this is how I built my name. When you can prove you can sell pot to people who have never tried pot at 11 years old and a little bit older, all my middle school friends, um, that's what, you know, quickly it got really... Much higher up. And that's why I had to start going over the border because by 12 years old, I'm selling more than, than what he's able to really provide. So you're selling pot. Start off selling pot. And the, does he suggest or do you get in your own mind, hey, I can even make it even more money if uh, if I start moving into into cocaine? That was an accident. Um, it actually happened because I was going over the border because I started stockpiling marijuana over the border in Juarez because it, it was too much. You know, you'd have to buy in bulk to really make the money. And so you'd had to stash it in places that I, that people allowed me to stash it. And, okay. and, and pot in bulk smells. Uh, it's not just a, like a little, even a little bag smells if you open it and you've got to close it right away. And now, now you got that yeah. smell all over the place. Well, you know. well when you put <laughs> bales of stuff, it, right. it's, it's really smelly. Stinky. So yeah. so I, I went into the wrong uh, situation one day, and people were doing it, cocaine. And right. again, just like with, I mean, it's like you want some, and it was like an easy yes, because these are people that I respected. These are people that I really liked. So it was an easy yes, let me try it. Did it hit you? I mean, some people, you know, they do cocaine. Okay, did cocaine, big deal. Other people, they do those first two lines or whatever, right. and man, it's that's 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 what they want. Let me tell you something. You'll notice me when I start. Right. If anytime I I mention the word cocaine, this right. is true. This is not. Uh, this is not. I'm making up. I'm making up a story. Every, I start rubbing my nose. Right. Yeah, you do. Because yeah. for just a couple of years, a few years, whatever. But right. that happens with me, and I'm just wondering whether it happened to you. You did those that first line, or how many you did? I was said, done. I love it. I was done. Yeah. That mo- that moment. I I. The, if I sold marijuana after that very moment, it was only because I was begged to connect somebody with a bale to, you know, some, right. some some heavy weight. Because from that moment on, I wasn't messing with marijuana anymore. I was doing it every day. So I'd move just enough to be able to have some personal, but I wouldn't move it anymore because it just changed the whole business aspect right there. When I found out how much money was in that drug in the 80s and how many people, you're talking about bikers would drive down from Colorado. They wanted it. You had people coming from California. They wanted it. They, everybody wanted to know a Mexican back then. You know, the Goombas in Vegas, they, they <laughs> love me. They all wanted a Mex. Everybody wanted a Mexican connection. Why? It, they, Just because? Because it was the 80s me. and everybody was doing cocaine for some reason. And, and, and listen, Jim, you remember, nobody even thought it was addictive. It was put yeah. out there, the big white lie, right? They were trying to convince us that it was actually addictive. Right. But it only seemed like respectable people, rich people, intelligent people, successful people. That's what it looked like was doing cocaine. Louis so, Delgado's our guest. He's also known right. as the dope doctor. He's He's... he's of the stories that he's telling you right now, he's no, he's divorced from all that, and we're going to get into, into that as right. well. Um, so you, you're dealing cocaine. I mean, I mean, are you making just bundles of money? Or are you? And then all of a sudden, I'm reading here you got arrested for what attempted murder at right. 17. Or what's what's going on with you? What I mean, yeah. you get so far involved with bad people. Let me, let me tell you something. It just it it it. Or, or never... did you become a big shot yourself and? Well, I, I always had to live that, that, that double life. So I had to be an innocent kid in order to not get caught. Look, at the whole time, I was still the kid that I needed to be for my family. Yeah. I was still going to school. Did your parents have any idea what was going on? Oh, God, on? no. If they did, they never told me. And even to this day, when I, when I went back and I, and I eventually came clean to them and I told them everything, yeah. they still kind of acted like they didn't know. Your brother, any idea? My brother would get hints every once in a while, and he would really hurt me really bad when he found out. 
Yeah, like every once in a while, like that guy Jaime ratted me out one time. My brother went in the Air Force and came back, and he found out that I, that I was moving heavy weight of cocaine. And when he when he found that out, he really destroyed me in front of a lot of people. And, and that almost became a really bad moment because I had a decision to make whether to allow people to hurt my brother. Uh, because he by by him becoming volatile in front of other people, it, it was making other people above me very nervous about what else he could do, and it, they didn't really like that it was affecting me. I was I was a, I had a lot of promise for them, I think. And and let me say one thing: as, as much as you know, you watch these movies and you think that that's the way it is, it really isn't. But at the moment, at that time in my life, I really believe that that's the way it was. I thought these people loved me. I thought these people were taking care of me. I thought these people were looking out for me. You were useful to them, though. I was very that useful was really to them. It. That was really it. Now, now, mind you, they let me do what I did and left at a very young age, and they let they let me go about my business, and and I didn't get hurt from them, and I didn't have to flip or I didn't have to do anything that I would wouldn't have wanted to do. Mm-hmm. However, I know that if I would have ever crossed a line in any way, or if ever would have violated any of the rules, that we had tons of rules. I mean, you think you're doing drugs because you don't like rules, right? I didn't like the rules the government had. Yeah. I didn't like the rules my parents had. I didn't like the rules the cops had or anything like that. But mind you, I, I, I did every rule that the street had because there was a lot of consequences in the street if you violated. Louis Delgado is our guest. He's also known as the dope doctor. doctor. He founded uh, Now Matters for uh, Now Matters More Foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that foundation helps families navigate the difficult business of treatment and scholarship treatment and all that kind of stuff to try to get off. You know, addiction to opioids and and whatever. I got a feeling Louis going to be with us maybe for the whole hour. Every Wednesday at this time, uh, every Wednesday, the Phillips file tries to devote 30, 40 minutes, maybe even more, to the opioid crisis that we have in Central Florida. We'll continue our conversation with Louis when we come back. It's the Phillips file on Real Radio 104.1. Phillips file for a Wednesday. You know, every uh, Wednesday, the Phillips file takes every uh, takes the first thirty to forty minutes, sometimes longer, to concentrate on the opioid crisis that we have well it's all it's nationwide we know that but we're trying to concentrate on the crisis here in uh, central florida this is interview number eight uh, louis delgado also known as the dope doctor is our guest he is uh, co-chair for the treatment committee of the orange county drug-free office along with carol burkett who's had on the program he's also uh, founded the now matters more foundation we'll get into that as uh, as the interview continues as well so you, you, you're dope man now. You're, you're <laughs> yeah. how old? Yeah. Uh, I started the dope man. 11. 11, 11 I started the dope man. 15. Down to yeah. El Paso, Juarez, right. back and forth and back and forth. Right. You're making probably uh, buku bucks. Yeah, that's usually the question that young people get, but I usually don't get into that part of it because, um, you know, you, 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 you Sounds too appealing. Right. Yeah. You just kind of spend what you make anyway. And to be honest with you, no matter what you make, I mean, you're, you're, you're like, you can't really spend it. I mean, when you're 15, this is the problem I had. At 15 years old, I, I really couldn't spend it. I couldn't really buy cars and everything like that. Yeah. I really couldn't buy anything. I had an apartment that I told my mom it was our party house, and I can somehow convinced her that it was okay to have uh, an apartment at 15 years old, even though I didn't live there, because she didn't like all my friends coming to the pool, uh, our pool. Uh-huh. So she would always be like, why are all these people here? Right. So so I just convinced her, well, that's why we, me and my friends went in on an apartment. And so I had an apartment, uh, and that's where I had, you know, my my fancy stuff. So you could stuff. afford a car. You just weren't old enough to drive the damn right, thing, right? Well, yeah. Well, I I have cars, just they weren't my mm-hmm. cars. And and I had a I had a, a motorcycle that I took off somebody because he owed me some money. So I had a motorcycle over there. And some yeah, I want to get in. I want to I want to get into how you got into. I mean, your life has changed drastically. Oh, it's drastic. done a one. It's, it's done a one eighty. But there was uh, it, there was that violent aspect right. as well. Have you, did you ever get in trouble with law enforcement? Do they ever nail you on anything? No, no. I, I'm one of those guys that it's really, um, 
I, I escaped a lot of injury. I mean, I look, man, I must have been meant to be what I am today and do what I do today because there's a lot of offenses that I could have been arrested for right. that I wasn't. And they would have been disqualifying offenses to be a certified addictions professional. Now, mind you, I've, I've been able to be in private practice and treat people for 20-something years. Right. I wouldn't have been able to do any of that and, and own treatment centers and help people if I would have ever had any of those arrests. A mark stick on your record. Yeah, correct. I mean, I got little things that they would kind of pick me up for. There was a, there was a there was a a big riot that got started because we were, you know it was a, it was a cultural thing. You know, back then it'd be you know it was us and the and the black guys against the white guys, and there was a big uh, fight that we had. And and uh, but I didn't get arrested for that. I got off. Um, and then, uh, of course the shooting that you kind of insinuated to now that, you know, that thing here, I am completely intoxicated, which usually happens. You get kind of get wrapped up. I was wrapped up in drugs. Mm. You know, let me, let me, let me, let me explain something. From morning till night? From morning till night. From morning till night, I was going to school completely intoxicated as an ADHD kind of kid yeah. that they wanted to put on Ritalin. Yeah. Marijuana was the first drug that I did and I could have swore it worked. If you would ask me at that age, I would have said it was working. The problem is it wasn't sustainable. The problem was is that it's up and down. Mm. That you don't know that when you're coming down, you're a moody person, right? Son and, of a gun, yes, right, indeed. right. Like, like it's yep. hard to sustain a certain headspace. And so when you start doing cocaine, you start drinking, and you start doing all these other things, and you start making money, and you start getting power, and you, your ego. I wasn't ready emotionally to deal with the power right. and the ego and the money. I wasn't ready to. There was no role model of how to deal with it other than be out about it. Right. And and there was so many rules. I couldn't wear I couldn't wear jewelry. I couldn't show anyone that I had money. I had to look completely broke. Right. I had all these right. rules placed upon me. But then the kids that would would sell for me, or the or the people that would that I would do business with, they were allowed to wear these. You know, it was the it was the eighties where people had big rope gold chains. <laughs> you know, like this one guy that worked for me he had a he had a big four by four Bronco with. I mean, it was just a cool truck. And here I am selling to him, and I and I had I'm in a rabbit. You know what I mean? In a VW. I'm in a VW rabbit. So you're using, you're selling. You're a dealer. Right. This starts at age nine right. by what? Seventeen. Let me just get this right. right. So some came along with yeah. Louis Delgado. Yeah. After well, all these years of being involved yeah. in using and selling, right. what happened? Well, the first you saw something. You saw the light, or a, or a I woman wish, got into your life that steered you in the right direction, yeah, or wish. what happened? Well, what first, happened to you? first at seventeen was you know I was in a bad situation. When you when you do drugs, you tend to think that you're inv- invincible. Correct. I thought I was invincible. I thought I could beat up everybody. And and mind you, I was a little guy. By the way, I I, I looked like twelve when I was like seventeen. Uh-huh. Just so you know, I was I was underdeveloped and short. I but I had this one thing that was happening with me that really made me very insecure. I had hair on my right side, but not on my left. Really? Yeah, I had these weird development issues that started happening. My doctor kept saying, "Are you using drugs? Are you using really? anything?" And he did find out because he took a lot of blood from me, and he would hint that he knew that I was using drugs. Yeah. But he didn't say anything to my parents. Um, and that was mistake number one. Dr. Sweeney never opened up his mouth, and he should have. Dr. Sweeney should have definitely said something to my family because he knew what was going on. But I had this development issue, this, this mm-hmm. puberty issue that started hitting me. Now, that really drives a guy nuts. When you're, when you're, you know, you're supposed to be this big, tough guy, right? But I look 12, and my puberty's all messed up. So now I'm getting more aggressive and more volatile. So at 17 years old, and I'm totally out of my mind and psychotic, um, we drove by this party uh, with some friends. And uh, they they flick us off. Now I didn't know that we had the high beams on. This is you know later on I find out we had the yeah, high beams on. Yeah, yeah. But we're just driving by and it's a party's letting out. So you just imagine like three hundred Mexican kids coming out of a party and we and we're driving right back and uh, they flick us off and it's like no nah, bro you don't know we you can't flick us off bro. Right. So let's flip this car around. So we did the bad mistake. Mistake Uh-oh. number one, flip the car around. Right. When we came back around, it happened to be baseball player kind of guys too. And so they opened up their trunks, just pulled out these bats and start hitting the truck. Well, this is a brand new truck. I'm not the one driving. It's not my truck, but it's still a truck, and, and it's disrespectful, right? So the house was not too far away, so we just 
drove real quick through the through the crowd, got to the house. When we got to the house, my friend, uh, one of the friends, ended up getting a rifle. And so we started walking back to the party. It was four of us walking back to the party. Two of us showed up to the party. You know, it was four of us going to beat up 300 people. This is the mind of cocaine. <laughs> yeah. This is what drugs tell you you gotcha. can do. I'm going to go grab one of those bats from these guys. This is exactly what I thought, by the way. I'm going to go grab one of these bats. They're going to swing once. And I'm going to grab that bat, and then I'm going to kill everybody. Like in the movies. Yeah, yeah. I'm still... Th- that's the thing. In my mind, it's a movie. Right. You know, it doesn't even seem real. Because everything always works out for Louie. Everything always mm-hmm. plays out well for Louie. I didn't... I never felt a consequence. You're right. Um, so I, I, I go back to this party. Well, my friend Where starts... Where are the other two? Well, the other, one is across... He, he was across the street... You know, he stayed out of it. The other one went to the bathroom right before we left, apparently. And so he's trying to jump through fences, trying to get there. But he didn't get there until it was over. So me and the other guy, you know, you know, trying to fight. They surround us. Anyway, long story short, one of the guys pulls the rifle thinking it wasn't loaded. And when he pulls the rifle, it shoots one person. So now my friend starts firing off the weapon. It shoots another person. Now he's running away. And I'm left there. And I'm going, what the hell? Now this is when it slows down. This is the first real shooting in my life. Uh, where I'm kind of like able to figure out what's going on. There was a couple other things that yeah. they're in, but this is the first one where I'm like in a really bad situation. I kind of try, trying to figure out what to Uh-oh. do. Yeah. So anyway, I make it back to the house. I don't know how I make it back to the house without getting completely destroyed by all these right. guys. But I make it back to the house again, trying to shorten up the story as much as possible. My friend is the is is a police chief's son. Mm. So. Here comes the police. They raid the house. They pull us out. You know, it's the daytime. They bring sure. the, the the chopper out. You know, they pull us out of the house. They they hit hit us pretty good. Throw us in the cop car, and I realize, man, we're screwed. But because who he is, because who his father is, I, I'm guaranteeing that's who it is. And I don't mean to, you know, if if they're listening, if they hear about this, look, I'm not trying to out you guys or hurt you in any way. I'm just trying to tell the truth in in regards to who you are back then, especially was a big deal. And so I was given a, the break of a lifetime. So even though I was in jail that night, guess what? Right. I didn't spend another night in jail. It was all thrown away. And and so, again, Louis didn't have to pay a consequence, even though they threatened me. You're going to get 20 years. Blah, blah. They just didn't know that I was a police captain yeah. with the police captain. Side. We usually break at this time, but we're going right. to continue for a few more minutes, and then we'll break because i got to get some. So you're, you're right. They pick you up. You, right. It sounds like it scared, scared you. you into I mean, something. It's, it's like, it's, you know, when you're, when you're drunk and you jump in cold water right. and you have that where something happens and right. it seems that you're sober. I don't know what you are, but I mean, there was some kind of, uh, uh, the light goes off in, in you and said, I can't continue no, to do this or, or what? That's the problem, Jim. It didn't, it made me more angry really, because what happened was my high school gave me my diploma. They would not let me return to school. And that's all I focused on. See, I never took responsibility for the shooting. I felt since I was the shooter, I, you had no right to arrest me in the first place. So that didn't scare me like that. Uh, bec- it would made me angry was they, they told me I had to leave uh, Texas for six months and they would get rid of the charge. All I heard was, you have to leave. All I heard was my high school saying they don't want me anymore, even though I, in my head, I was a victim. I wasn't the shooter. Right. And my high school kicked me out. You know, and they, and didn't let me come back to the high school, but they gave me my diploma. So instead of looking at it like, wow, I'm getting all these gifts, instead of having any kind of gratitude, because at that point in my life, I didn't even know how to accept gratitude. Right. I just felt like a victim, and I and I buried myself deep in a victim mentality. And that's six months I was sober. The only reason I was sober is because I thought the feds told the state cops to let me off so they can get me on a federal charge. That's what my the people above me were manipulating me to believe was, oh, the feds are going to be coming after you. That's why they're not putting you in jail for the shooting. They're going to let you stay out there. They're going to let you keep working, and then they're going to get you on a federal charge. So that's all I thought was going to happen. So I felt like a victim, and I felt angry. And when I came back to to El Paso six months later, 
I was worse than ever before because you know how they tell you people, places, and things? I didn't change any people, places, and things. I didn't change anything because, I again, I was the victim. And so when In I, a 12-step program, they do say you have to change the people you correct, surround yourself with. Correct. The places where you live, you went right back to the same went people. Went right back to the same people. It wasn't geez. then yet, Jim. It just wasn't then yet. It was later on, eight months later, okay. after it got worse and I got more violent and more problems happened when I started hurting people that I actually cared about, that all of a sudden I was with this female, right? And, and, and I wanted to like her more than I did, but I just couldn't, right? It wasn't that kind of deal. But I said something. I couldn't perform. That's what it is. You want the, you want to plain skinny? That's what it is, Jim. I couldn't perform, and that never happened to me. I was an 18-year-old kid that couldn't perform. That was very embarrassing. Cocaine had never done that to me before. I never thought I could do that, and I was so embarrassed, and my ego was so big at the time. Well, you should have called me. I could have told you. <laughs> that, Stop it. That is oh, my boy. bottom. Isn't that crazy? That is actually what made me swear off cocaine. No. I said, you know, Moira, if ecstasy existed at that time, I mean, if, 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 if put it this way, if Viagra existed at that time, I would have mixed my cocaine with Viagra. I would have never quit doing cocaine. Oh, my Because yeah, that cocaine works on your mind, but other parts of your oh body, it doesn't, my. you know, whatever your mind is thinking and saying, it's not. It doesn't work. No. And, and, no, and, and arrest didn't do it. You know, getting hurt at school didn't do it. Violence didn't do it. Shootings didn't do it. Fear didn't do it. The fact that I couldn't perform sexually was my bottom. And I'm embarrassed to say that in one way, but that's exactly how shallow I was. No kidding. And so on my 19th birthday, my 19th birthday, I swore it off, never touched it again. I moved to L.A., and then I, got, I, I just dried out. I didn't get clean and sober any, any way by going to treatment or, or going to meetings the way I should. I'd go to meetings, but I'd get in fights at meetings because I didn't understand crosstalk. I didn't understand the rules of the meetings. So when I would hear people talk, I was so paranoid still from cocaine, even though I was clean and sober. People would be whispering or talking over there, or they would share. But when they would share, I could have swore Moyer they were talking about me. Uh -oh. I thought for sure they were talking about me, and they weren't. But they were just sharing their own personal story. But it sounded so much like my story that I said, I know you're talking about me, brother. So why don't you just look at me like a man and talk? I'd get kicked out of meetings. I said, man, I'm just not. I said, how am I going to get clean and sober? How am I ever going to do this? I would still go to Las Vegas. I would still hang out on the Sunset Strip. I would still hang up with gangbangers that I knew in L.A. I still hung out with criminals. I you're still hanging around with these people, but you're still I'm a, but but you're I'm clean, clean and sober. And so I was proud of that. And I was, I was going to prove it, damn it, that I didn't have to stop hanging out with the people and places and things as long as I just didn't use. But a year and a half later, I was... Still dry, and I found myself making some mistakes again, Jim. I found myself running out of money in L.A. I used every dollar I had saved up. Every, I mean, for I don't know how I ran through that much money because I'm using my mom's money too. I'm using her money. I'm using my dad's money. I'm using, I mean, and I ran out. It's so expensive out there the way my lifestyle was. And next thing you know, I had to make a serious decision. I'm, I got, I got the luck of a lifetime. My mom said, "Are you coming home?" And, and and when she said that they had moved to Florida, my dad had retired out of the military. Right. He was now in Florida. My brother got out of the Air Force. He's now in Florida. And my brother made it sound good. He said, I have a boat. Our parents bought a boat. Come out here. The girls are beautiful. It's just like California except Florida. So that was it. You're not performing sexually. You run out of money. Is that, that, is that essentially that finally it? Isn't that crazy? Sorry, and, that was it. and maybe being in the right place at the right time where, you, where your parents and your brother said, eh, come to Florida. And the, and the biggest thing is when I came here to Florida, I met Dana. When I met, I was a 20 year, 20 year old kid. She was 19 years old. I met Dana. I have never met somebody that didn't want me for something, didn't want to use me for something. I was used all my life for whatever, for my contacts, for my friends, for my money, for whatever. But this Dana didn't need me for anything. She was innocent. She wasn't a partier. She never smoked. She never drank. She, never, you know, she didn't do any of these things. Right. And yet she still was attracted to me. Right. You know, and I found that so. I don't know. It's so intoxicating mm -hmm. to be loved the way that she loved me. I wanted to love myself 
the way Dana loved me. I want to. I'm going to take a little break, and when we come back, I want to know about the journey that led you to become a certified addiction specialist and all these things that you're involved in. I mean, we could talk for hours and hours and hours, and I, you know, we might keep you into the four o'clock hour <laughs> unless you have to do something. Louis Delgado is our guest. It's the Phillips File on Real Radio 104.1. Phillips off of this Wednesday, you know, every Wednesday at this time, uh, we take the thir- uh, first 30 to 40 minutes, sometimes longer, to concentrate on the opioid crisis here in Central Florida. This is interview number eight. We're talking with Louis Delgado, and Louis Delgado is a certified addiction specialist. He's had a rather checkered past, if you were listening to the first uh, 30 minutes of the program. You know, you heard him wheeling his uh, stories about wheeling and dealing in, in narcotics, from the time he was nine years old up until he's 17, I mean, he, he was into it and really into it heavy. And uh, when, we, when we broke for the commercial, Louie, uh, you essentially said, okay, what are you, 17 or 19? 19 when I quit. And you finally run out of money. You, you were clean and sober, right? but you're, you're out of money. Yeah, oh, yeah, I was 20 by the time I, I 19 I went to L.A. Um, by the way, it's Certified Addictions Professional. I just Sorry. want to make sure. Okay. No, 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 it's not as I just, I, I have to say the initials right or Somebody out there might say, you know, you're representing right. yourself Certified wrong. addictions <laughs> professional. Yeah. To thine own self be true, Jim. You know, I got I to gotta be honest about it. All right. So I went out to I went out to L.A. Right. I'm 19. And by 20, you know, I'm a year. Uh, yeah. You came but, here so, to Florida. 20. Yeah. About 20 and a half I got here. And I met Dana. And um, your and, parents said, Louis, come, they to, all, come to yeah, Florida. Yeah, my parents I mean, were you say, here. look, I got no money. I don't know what the, you know. And they right. say, hey, come to Florida. We're in Florida. Come in. Yeah, come all in, come all they visit. knew is that, you know, I had dropped out of college again. I was in film school out there. That's what I wanted to do. I mean, I was so used to living a double life. I mean, what else do you do when you live a double life? You become an actor, right? Uh, That's what I, I figured. I, 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 yeah. You know, I figured, right. like, yeah, I'm so good at acting <laughs> because everybody believed me all the time, right? And so I'm out there. I'm like, I'm just act. And, and, and as easy as it felt, and as and as and as easy as some of that stuff was kind of coming to me, what the problem was I kept getting in fights and arguments and, and bad situations because I didn't know how to deal with the emotional stuff. Now right. back then, now mind you, words back then still hurt me. And so when people would say, uh, you know, like wet back or spick or anything like that, one of the negative words, am I allowed to say those things? You can believe my. I, guess so. I, well, I just said them. I'm sorry. I That's apologize. Fine. No, it's all right. But back then, those words were really big to me. Sure, of course. You know, and and so when you would say those words, or you would insinuate as a Mexican kid, as a Mexican Hispanic kid that I was, as Hispanic yeah. that I was, when you or, or Latino, when you would say those things to me, I, I I didn't know how to handle it. And so a lot of those words were being thrown around back then. This is b- before Rodney King rides. By words the way. matter. In right? LA, yeah. the so words you, matter you a lot. So Louis Delgado is not walking away. I'm not somebody, walking away. You know, somebody throws one of those words at right. you. You're not walking away. You no. say, "Hey, you know, you no, get right up in their face. It's going to be problem, a problem, not mine. Right? It's going to be a problem." But it, but it started happening with producers. It's you know because Hollywood is <laughs> is very like how tall you are. Like they'll talk about you openly. Like if you're too short. Or they'll talk about you openly if your skin tone is just a little bit off, right? Well, I'm not used to that. I'm not used to, you know, people picking at you and talking about you right in front of you like you don't exist, like you're an item. And oh, my God. So anyway, that's not even an important part. The important part is, you know, I wasn't emotionally ready, so I left. And I came here where my family was, and I felt like it's time to get back with my family. I had a year and a half clean. Again, I met Dana. I'm starting to feel like myself again. I, I even try to dress different. D- Jim, I try to dress in, in preppy clothes. I had never dressed with polos in my life. I started wearing Izod. Uh-huh. You know, I, I got boat shoes for Christ's sake. Yeah. You know, I, I Good start, God. Yeah, I, I really What's tried. I cut my hair. I, I did all kinds of things that, that what I thought looked clean. Right. But on the inside, I still felt dirty. I was going to meetings, but I really wasn't. I was lying. I said my name was Carlos. I'd say my name was, was Juan. I, said, I ran out of Hispanic names. I went to so many meetings, and I ran out of Hispanic names, but I was not telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And so until one time, I didn't know that people in meetings sometimes went to two meetings. 
You know, and yeah, so they yeah. didn't just stay at that meeting. So all of a sudden, one day, a guy goes, well, aren't you like Carlos or something like that? And I'm like, oh, he caught me. <laughs> you know, when I use the <laughs> fake name. Yeah. So anyway, uh, it happened accidental that I got in this business. Uh, I was going to fight somebody. Uh, Dana and I were at a, at a, at a karaoke. And karaoke is brand new back then. And there's a big right. old white man that was singing Bye Bye Miss American Pie, whatever that song is, right? Yes. And I've never heard that song before at this time. And that song is like an eight-minute forever song, yeah, uh-huh. right? So I'm thinking he's, he's lying to us. This guy is taking advantage. You know, I'm the police of the world now. I'm thinking he's taking advantage yeah. of this of that young girl who's doing the karaoke and us by not stopping. Because every, th- every time I thought it was over... He just Another started. Verse. He just yeah. started right Another. back up again. So I'm heckling him now, you know. Not, but I have no alcohol, no cocaine in me. But I still apparently think that I'm really big and huge and and powerful, right? Well, after he finishes singing, he comes up to our table and he's a huge dude. And I'm thinking, um, as he's getting closer, I'm thinking, I came to Florida. I'm here to catch a case. I'm going to catch a case. This guy's going to kill me. <laughs> what am, I'm already looking at? What am I going to hit him with? You know, because he's huge. He comes and hugs me, which, you know, I, I didn't even know how to deal with that. I was just like, oh, can you please, like, not touch me? And so he hugs me. He goes, hey, man, I really like you. He goes, hey, good. so what are you guys here for? And we told him here yeah, for a yeah. psychology convention because I was studying psychology because I was trying to figure myself out in college. Right? I'm trying to figure out why my brain works the way it works. And he says, why don't you come work uh, at this hospital? He worked at this place called PIMS, right, where he goes, they bring in drunks like I'm drunk now. He goes, they bring in people like me. The cops, they let them go, they leave, and then sometimes the drunks like to destroy the place. He goes, so we have a code team that actually, you know, it's three guys, and they, they come and physically handle the person, put them down. The, the nurse comes, puts a shot in them, and they sedate them, and we, we put them in straps. Does that sound like an interesting job for you? You know, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Yeah. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, you're going to pay me to get physically aggressive with somebody? Totally legal? He goes, yeah, I go, absolutely. That's how I got in this business. I didn't get in this business because I cared about people. I didn't get in this business because I thought I wanted to become a counselor or anything like that. I got in this business because he told me that I didn't have to flip burgers. This is all I heard in my head was I didn't have to flip burgers. I didn't have to do telemarketing, which was the easiest job to get at the time, you know, without any experience. And I can physically put my hands on somebody. And it was at that place right there in St. Pete, in the Clearwater area, where when I was doing it, I started feeling for the pe- for the clients. You know, because as I'm why though because I mean, I'm you're, communicating you're, with you're that. an aggressive person. You haven't lost that aggressiveness, Correct. even though you're clean and sober. Correct. But you're still ready to mix it up. You're really, you're. Yeah. I mean, you just want to be physical and aggressive right. and assertive. So what happened in that process? You start with the, you start in that job where you say, "This is it for me, man. I can manhandle right. people. I can right. push them around. I can smack them around if right. I want to." But you found so compassion. What happened? Where did so, the compassion so come from? I don't know. Where does that empathy? Where did that start, though? Where did that empathy come? You know, in? I. I fully feel that my relationship with Dana opened up some neural pathways in my brain of a compassion for other people and care for other people just by the way she was with me, the way she accepted me, the way that she you know, was okay with my past, with my story, with not, not judging me. Right. I think that started bleeding into me a little bit. Uh-huh. And I was going to meetings, but I wasn't really being honest. You know, nobody really knew I was even going to meetings. You know what I'm saying? But I'm going. What were you going to the meetings for then? I mean, if you were, I mean, <laughs> they no, kept, I, I, I keep coming back, Jim. I don't know. No, I, I, I mean, I understand. Reason, yeah, I you go to the meetings, back. but you're not. You I, know, I, it was fake. I'm Carlos. Look, I'm Diego. I'm Juan. I'm, I'm Fred. They uh, said two things. They said fake it till you make it and keep coming back. And those were the two things that I that really stuck in that my head. That was the advice that, that, right. that you got at the meeting. Yeah, because and here's the deal. I was such a great student on the street. 
where I didn't have to have everything negative happen to me. I learned by other people's experiences. I fully believe that you don't have to experience things to learn from them. I think that's 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 a line of crap. I think you have to be very watchful and be able to learn from other people who experienced them, and then you can avoid a lot of the pitfalls. Well, when I was going to those meetings, what I saw, even though they didn't have anything I wanted, what they did have what I wanted was a sense of peace about who they were. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that sense of peace and that spirituality from who I was. That's what you were looking for. That's what I was looking for. That's what I was looking for. So so whatever all that stuff was happening, mm-hmm. when I started talking to these clients and when I saw the staff coming on shift and saying, We're gonna, we're gonna get this guy to go off so we can get him, you know, wrapped up and we can get him in, in some shackles so that we can have a good night tonight. When I saw they were instigating clients in order for us to have a decent work night, I said, I can't be a part of this. This is this is criminal. I I I started fighting for the client. And when I started fighting for the client, I realized that the system that I was working within was was not going to support me. Yeah, so you're not fighting. You're fighting. I mean, you're now, fighting. I was fighting. But you're not fighting. fighting the system. Exactly. And that, I found my new inspiration through that. So that reputation carried on. So so when I started fighting the system there, and then I moved on to another job and moved on to another job, I was always fighting for clients' rights that my relationship in the treatment industry became somebody who actually gives a damn. And somebody who's always fighting for client rights. And that's how the doctors who are really good doctors, not the criminal doctors, not the ones that were being, you know, ignoring the problem, but the real good ones started befriending me. And I started getting friends in really high places that I actually cared. And next thing you know, 23 years old, when, I, when, I, when I'm over here in Orlando going to UCF and I graduate UCF and now I'm married with Dana, I had a doctor call me out of the blue and says, do you want to be in private practice? I heard all about you. And next thing you know, I'm in private practice. This is not what I wanted to do. But when I was in it, by the way, I interviewed here and I interviewed with him. I interviewed here for the monsters in the morning, but back no then, way. It was, yeah, yeah, I was, I, 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 I stepped up in front of, it was, it was a Russ and Bo yeah. and Dirty Jim, and, and I had an interview with That's them. Awesome. I'll never forget this. I go interview with them and they're sitting, they're, they're sitting in front of the door and I'm, I'm on, on the other side of the table and they go, and Bo goes, how do you feel about white people? That was the, that was my interview question. Oh, how do you okay. feel about white people? And, and so I'm, I go, well, I hope, uh, I hope, uh, they're kind of cool because, <laughs> you know, I'm sitting here with you guys and I can't get out of this room unless you guys let me yeah. out. And, but here's the, here's the well, issue. You made the right decision. I made the you right got decision. real work. Exactly. Well, yeah, it was only 750 an hour to, work. to work as a producer at, at the time. This and I couldn't do it. never keep your wife and family. So you keep moving right. up, moving, moving up, moving right. up. Do you so think I made there's a somewhere along the line people were looking at you and say, you know, this guy, Louis Delgado, he's right. treating, he's treating clients and patients differently than we treat him treated them before and they're responding better that's exactly what happened i had a therapist approach me and, and kind of out me right so he says there's a reason why the clients are responding to you but you're not telling us what it is and he was really good at what he did because i had i had not really been honest with anybody and he's the way he's talking to me and the way you know he sat me down in his office and the way he was talking to me was very uh i don't know threatening it made me very emotional inside and it made me think things that i didn't want to think and it made me remember things that i didn't want to remember and when he started saying how powerful it would be if I would just be honest and be vulnerable and allow the vulnerability and honesty to come yeah. through because if I'm going to do good in this industry, I'm going to have to get honest with me first and help me first. He goes, but then you're going to be very powerful for other people. And I, and I just believed him. And they put me on the alcohol and drug unit at UBC when we used to have a drug and alcohol unit back then before it went full psych. And then now it's back to drug and alcohol and psych now. But back then, uh, you know, this is 91, 92, 93 era. I believed him, and so I—that is where I become. I became who I became. Is right there at UBC back in the day. Louis Delgado's our guest. He is a certified addictions professional. He's had a very checkered past uh, back when he was uh, a young, young, young man. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk about where this crisis is right now 
in Central Florida, what you think is the best course of action for uh, for people to take. It is a very serious. Pro- You're a great storyteller. There's no question about that. I'd put you Appreciate on staff. It. I don't have the money though. <laughs> It's I would f- do it free for you. Louis Delgado is our guest. It's the Phillips File on Real Radio 104.1. Your next chance to win $1,000 is just minutes away on Real Radio 104.1. From the Phillips File for this uh, Wednesday, Louis Delgado is our guest. He is a certified addictions professional. Long story short, when he was a young man in the El Paso Juarez area, he got involved in uh, drugs at nine years old, did it all, smoking, snorting, all that good stuff, dealing, selling, this, that, whatever, up and down and all around, finally makes it after, uh, you know, uh, some time in California, this, that, whatever, makes it back to Florida and uh, begins that process of becoming clean. Well, he was clean and sober, comes back to Florida and his parents are retired here. His brother's living here. He's, he's going to meetings, trying to keep that clean and sober thing going. And then you got involved in, you started working with, like for a rehab hospital. Right. It's essentially what is it on St. Right. St. Pete. Right. And it is like the way that clients are being treated. And, fi- you know, and Louis, because he's been you know, involved in all this kind of stuff, both as a, uh, you know, as a user and a dealer, he has a different approach. Begins to develop this different approach when it comes to uh, to people who are having problems with a, with addiction, and slowly, as I as I see it, hear it, begins the process of kind of changing around yourself about how you're dealing with people. Right. You're dealing with yourself, and you're dealing with people. And that's they're helping you. You're helping them. And that's what it is. You know, I finally had to deal with the issue that you know I felt bullied by my brother, and I felt like the system was bullying the clients, and that was my way of kind of. Yeah. Pushing back was saying, well, you know, you can't you can't act like that. You can't do that. So when I realized that if by sharing some of my story with these people and just being honest about where I was with it, clients responded. So next thing you know, I graduate with this degree. A doctor offers me, you know, it was Dr. Pete Butkins, who's still here in town. He offers me to come at to Quest Counseling. This is, what, 93, you know, in private practice. I'm thinking I can go right into private practice. So that's what I did. I went into private practice and, and, you know, he had this small little office and I still remember he had these two offices and he goes, he goes, uh, you know, we had 30 some clients and he goes, just come in here and then, you know, we can build this. And I said, well, let's do this. Why don't you introduce me to everybody you deal with? Everybody that sends you clients right now, introduce them to me. So I went and I, and I started meeting all the people that, that, that sent them clients and we doubled our capacity in one month. And all it was is because people saw me so young because mind you, I'm like 23 years old. And, I, and I'm being open about being in recovery, and then I'm Hispanic, and that had some sort of street credibility out here for some reason. And so when I started talking, they go, well, adolescents would love you, and they started flooding me with adolescents, and that's why I started treating. I, I built an entire career from the pay program right there in Seminole County uh, and then built it from there. And, and, and so as much as I didn't want to become this, I became this. And, then, and I want to fast forward to where we are now. Because here we are in this right. opioid crisis. And let me tell you something. Back then, when, when, when this was all happening, what I'm telling you right now was a time of another crisis. Because, uh, you know, there was, we did have an opioid problem before. We had an ecstasy problem here before. And I, would, and there, I met a lady named Tinker Cooper. I don't know if you remember her from the area. But she had this woman's, you know, this, this, this association. There was a bunch of mothers that were angry because their kids were dying from ecstasy and heroin, right? And I met with her, and, and I said, I want to talk to your group. And when I went and talked for her group, talked to her group, it was all mothers that their kids had died. And I said, I'm the bad guy. I want you to put a face on what you're angry about because it's not about the drug dealers. It's not about the drugs itself. It's not about the clubs. You're, you're out there trying to shut down clubs and you're trying to be angry at drug dealers and all that. You can't, you can't do that. I said, what you need to do is you need to work on this disease of addiction. And I'm showing you that I had the same disease as your sons have. The only difference is I was on the opposite side, but I was also an addict. I was also using. 
I said, so I put a face on a drug dealer for them, and I put a face on someone that was also suffering from them. Where I are mean, we in this crisis in, in Central Florida? Is it, is, it, is it static? Is it getting worse? A little bit better? Based on your observations and your involvement with all this. You know, uh, you know, Louis Delgado is a certified addictions uh, professional. Right. He's also on the, uh, the, the ta- various task, force, right. task forces here in Central Florida right. that are trying to, to deal with this. Last time I checked, it just seems that there's there, there's a, a dozen and a half different task forces. <laughs> I sometimes wonder whether, you know, they're like ships passing in the night. You know, this is why I love Carol Burkett, because uh, from a person like that, I've been there since the beginning of yeah. that, since 98 or whatever, when it started. And the reason I love it so much is because she's really open. She's really open to allowing private practitioners like myself, private industry, come into to this meeting and, and kind of help private industry get involved. And the difference is, is people like me can make a decision overnight. I don't, I don't have a lot of red tape. Government has a lot of red tape. They have a lot of uh, rules and regulations. Well, you know what? People like me and people that own treatment centers, we can make a decision in a second, in a day. And so here's where I think we're at. We can't arrest ourselves out of this problem. We have a great law enforcement. The, the people in law enforcement here, by the way, are incredible. Correct. Uh, I think Demings, I think Espinoza, I think Mina, I think all these people are great. I think Teresa Jacobs, Mayor Jacobs, I think we have a lot of great people. But you can't arrest yourselves out of this problem. But the fact that they're listening to people like me, the fact that these people actually have conversations with people like me to understand the disease itself and how it works within our families and how it works within our mind and the fact that they believe that recovery is possible and recovery does work allows us to develop the drug courts, allows us to develop options for people instead of just arresting us, allows them to understand that anyone can get addicted to this. This isn't the normal uh, way. This isn't the way I got into drugs. This is a way where my wife, who's never done drugs in her life, could right now go into surgery, come out of surgery, get be prescribed a pain medication. Correct. We've had that story. Stay yeah. on the pain medication longer than she should, but not because she 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 really wants to, but because she's not understanding that there's other options how to deal with pain and not understanding how dangerous it is. Not understanding that if you change the definition of what you're taking to to and, and you start calling it legal heroin, even though it's really not legal heroin, but if you put that in your mind that whenever you take a pain medication, it's legal heroin. Just maybe you won't get that refill. Just maybe you try some natural ways to deal with your pain. Just maybe you'd walk away from it sooner. Because if you don't, it starts grabbing you. It start, yeah, it Works controls. It, it, it makes changes within your brain that makes you feel pain when you're not really in pain. And is it essentially, you know, we hear from, you know, the recovering addicts and addicts we've had on this program. It seems to me that their biggest fear is withdrawal because they speak. Right. Because just the process and that terrible, terrible physical and I suppose mental feeling as well. You know, I mean, if you had the flu ten times worse than right. the flu, and somebody said, "Hey, take this, and you won't have the, you won't feel the flu In anymore. An you'll still right. have the flu, but you'll feel so much better." Well, who wouldn't? Right, who and then wouldn't you do something. Well, and like you think that? you can just chip just enough just to not be sick, yeah. you know, and you feel like you can kind of manage it and get that. But you got to remember, Phil. I mean, uh, we feel like we, we have such a, a low self esteem, and we have such a we feel so horrible about ourselves, you feel so dirty that you feel like I I, I have to do it all on my own. The reason I have to do it on my own is because you feel so the, the, your self esteem is so low. You, you feel hide. like such a weak person that you think that's the only way to prove that you're strong to yourself. So where are we with this? And in, in, based on your observations and the people you talk with that are so involved with trying to come to grips with what's going on, I, 
better, worse, static? Where are we? I, I don't think we're static. Not in our area. I think in our area we're better. I, and the reason I say we're better in our area because I think our, our local politicians are actually doing something about it. We can't expect the White House to do something about it. That's way too high up. Our local, smaller level politicians are actually doing something about it. Our local law enforcement is doing something about it. People like you. Look, I'm on real radio right now talking about addiction and recovery. I'm on, I'm on the Commodore show. I'm with Moira and Jim Phillips, and we're talking about addiction and recovery. So how can we be worse? This is actually better. You're actually providing a voice for people like me to say, please understand that we're normal, everyday people with a disease. Every Wednesday, of course, when we do these interviews, we get texts from people say, where do I start? I don't know where to start. I don't know. You know, I, I have a problem or, right. uh, or, or I've got a son who has a problem or my sister's got a problem. Mm-hmm. Where do they, what do they do first? That is the problem. This system is so difficult to navigate. It's, it's crap. Do they, do they call 211. Do they call the police? 211 is a fantastic start. The whole reason I started the Now Matters More Foundation was for that. And what is that? Briefly, okay. What, okay. what is that foundation? Now about? stands for needs over wants, first of all. So the Now Matters More Foundation, what we do is we evaluate treatment programs because there's so many bad treatment programs. There's so many people. People out there, just like, look, the pain management industry was a good industry until the pill mill kind of jumped in, right? And they ruined that industry. We need pain management. There are people with serious pain, and we require people uh, to be, you know, ethical in that in that business. Well, there's no different in the treatment industry. The criminals came into the treatment industry as well, and they did some body brokering. They started using you for your policies and all that. You became a policy, not a person. So what the Now Matters More Foundation does is I know these treatment owners myself. I go visit them. People like uh, like me, there's a lot of other good people that, in this. That I got Courtney Lynch. She's a fantastic nurse. I got a president named Trinity Phillips. He's a fantastic person. We go out and visit these programs, evaluate. Them. So when people call us from at the Now Matters, you can go to nowmattersmore.org and you can reach us like that. You reach out to us. We'll we'll listen to your story and kind of match a treatment program that gotcha. matches you. We get nothing from these treatment centers for referring you. This is a nonprofit organization that doesn't make any money like that. I don't pull any money like that. So so we have to have trusted ways to find the way because if you accidentally call the wrong place, if like if you listen to a commercial just because it sounds good, these are all marketing ploys. These are all people that are telling you there's a cure out there. Listen, I don't know if there's a cure or not, but but that's not the way we're going to sell it. Once an addict, to you. always an addict. Do you call yourself a recovering yeah, let me, addict? Let me ask you a question. You've yeah. been clean and sober how many years now? 29. Do you still have the, the? I mean, is it everyday process no. for you? No. You don't think about it? No, and I got and I, I got to be I honest Every once that. in a while I do. I have to admit it. Every right. once in a while, you know, if somebody, you know, right. I have to admit, if somebody in a, in a moment of who knows when, right. Uh, you know, if they put down the four lines of cocaine, I well, would that be, might be different. Though, I would Jim. be very, no, <laughs> I would be very tempted to say, "Oh, what the hell? What's, how's that, how's that going to hurt?" Here's what I can tell you. I can tell you this, and this is really awkward that you brought with the cocaine. If I go into a conversation where I start talking about the lines and I get too deep in that kind of conversation, my hands will get watery a little I bit, see. and I and I'll feel I'll feel that anxiety, yeah, sweaty, and that stomach, yeah. nervous. Yeah, yeah. So so there is a physiological response to to seeing cocaine or to talking too deeply about, about cocaine. But you asked me if I ever feel it just like no, in normal everyday life. As long as you're doing the things you need to do in your life, as long as you're taking care of yourself health wise, I really believe this because it's working for me. It, then it, you know that hungry, angry, lonely, tired. You know that's the basics of it. But all the corny stuff really works. If you take care of all that corny stuff, it's amazing how we are so resilient. I believe that you have to make recovery instinctual. I have learned how to make it very instinctual. Just like as a fighter, if I had to think when you're going to punch me, oh, what is your, what's going to be your next move? You'd whip my butt in two seconds. But if I learned the correct instincts, which I did, of how to block, move, dodge, punch, re- react, respond, 
Well, then it just made me better on the street. Well, there's recovery is no different. You have to learn how to do this instinctually. If you're in a bad situation where somebody is dropping down some lines or something like that, or somebody is yeah. offering you pills, or you are starting to feel some pain, you better get around a good support system immediately and not around those enablers because there's a lot of enablers and people around you that are okay with you being sick. Louis, I gotta, I gotta let you go. I, I got I, I want to bring you back in a month. Can we Thank do you, that? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you're a great storyteller. You got a great, a lot of information. You're High a wonderful energy, guest. passionate about your cause. Exactly what we great. need. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate you know, it. We're being back. Let's get a handle on this. You know, somehow in 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 Central Florida. Thanks, I appreciate, Louis, appreciate you, it. Thank you. It's the Wednesday edition of the Phillips File on Real Radio 104.1.